Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 12. We'll begin our reading in verse 22. Excuse me. Hebrews 12, verse 22. Hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escaped not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape, if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word yet once more signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken, as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we, receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. The quotation that I have for you to begin our service today with a word from, our, from one of our fathers in the faith is from Robert Trail. Robert Trail writes, but it is not terrible, is it not terrible to be brought to, the, to God the judge of all? No, for ye are come to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. As if the apostle had said, fear not to come to God the judge of all, when ye see Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and his blood that sealed and confirmed that covenant so near to God. God the judge is your friend and will absolve you. And the blood of the covenant, as it is called, will speak better things for you and speak louder for your salvation than the guilt of sin and the thunders of the law can speak against you. And never had a sinner been saved if the voice of Christ's blood had been outcried by any voice from heaven or earth or hell. Very comfort, comforting phrase from Robert Trail, Scottish minister. So, beloved, we have been studying how to profit from public worship. We had a few general sermons talking about some general principles. And then we honed down on one particular principle, and we've been on that for a little bit here, in Galatians 4 and Hebrews 12, and we called it a proper valuation or evaluation. A proper placing value upon the public worship. If we're going to profit from public worship, then we're going to have to esteem it. And we're going to have to have a proper esteem of it. If we don't have a proper esteem of the public worship, we're not going to have a proper profiting from it, are we? Something we have to think about. And this is, I think, a problem in our day. Um... Certainly not among any of you, but among many that are in the visible church, right? Um, Worship is a sort of voluntary event. It's a sort of uh, buffet. You know, you can pick and choose. You can come when you want and go when you want. Not really a big deal. And I think a part of this, as we said a couple of weeks ago, I think it stems from the mindset that, you know... um, Really, I already got my salvation, and so there's not much more I can get from God. And so, you know, I come in and out of worship as I please because I'm already where I need to be. 
course, that's a mistake, isn't it? It's a mistake to, to value the public worship so little. It is presumptuous. I remember one time I was at a, a, a gathering of a group of ministers and elders, ruling elders and ministers. And one of the ruling elders was praying. I will never forget this because it was very striking to me. And I was very glad that during our, our prayer together, we prayed this along with him. The elder said, Lord, help us to see what a tenuous grasp we have upon our salvation. And what did he mean by that? Well, there's a way that that could be misunderstood <clears throat> by way of error, but there's another way that it could be rightly understood to our great edification, right? Because it is truly the presumptuous that will stand before the Lord on that great day and be dumbfounded. They'll be like that man where Jesus speaks of, of, the, of the wedding feast. And there's a man at the wedding feast and he doesn't have the wedding garments on. And the owner, the master of the feast says to him, Sir, how did you get in here? And he'll be speechless. He won't know what to say. There'll be nothing. There'll be no defense at that day. Or like those men in Matthew chapter 7 verses 23 and 4. Or 22 through 24. Those men that say, Lord, we have, we have prophesied in your name. We've cast out devils in your name. We've done many mighty works in your name. Of course, Jesus begins that by saying, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who has done the will of my Father which is in heaven. And then the king will answer to them, Depart from me, workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Well, beloved, we don't want to be presumptuous. And let me just say it this way. A part of our valuation of public worship, a bringing up of public worship, is that public worship ought to be designed to empty us out of presumption. That's one thing public worship ought to do. Now, that's not the only thing it ought to do. If we're being emptied out every time we come to church on the Lord's Day, well, that's going to be a little bit taxing. But that is at least a part of what public worship ought to be. The emptying us out of our presumption. Our presentation then of the remedy. right? And, we hum and that when we humbly and without presumption come to Christ. And abide with him. That we will find mercy. And so a, a part of the proper evaluation of the public worship. Is to remember the tenuous grasp. That we have upon Christ. And that really Christ has tied that grasp to outward and ordinary means. This is the way he has established for us to begin and end with him. And so we want to profit from public worship. We want in that profiting from public worship. Rightly to give it its proper value. Its proper worth. And we said that Galatians chapter 4. Was a really really good place to do that. Because it teaches us things about uh, the church. And her gathering that are very important to us. Paul will say such wonderful things about the church in Galatians 4. You'll remember he says. This Jerusalem which is above is free. It is unfettered with the with bondage to sin, and it is our mother. This Jerusalem which is above, it's the mother of us all. She has in that sense given birth to us, right through the means of grace that God has set out to his people in the, in the public worship, the preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments, proper church discipline. All of those things congeal together. The communion of saints as we started to read about in our confession today. All of those things ought to work together, beloved, so that we might look back at the end of our lives and say, I'm sure thankful for my mother and what she did for me. 
in that it was in that context of the visible church that I heard about Christ. I was encouraged to believe in him and to take hold of him and to follow him. And I had brothers and sisters that were with me on that journey and they stuck with me the whole way and encouraged me along the way. Even though I was sometimes harsh upon them, they forgave me and we went ahead together. And beloved, without the visible church, how would these things take place? And then we came to Hebrews 12. And in coming to Hebrews 12 and talking about that proper value, the proper worth that we ought to attribute to the worship service, we first contrasted it, like the apostle does, with Sinai. Right in verses 19 through 21. There's a contrast there between Sinai and Jerusalem. Because the Jews that were then alive to whom he writes, they were thinking of, maybe we need to head back to Sinai. Maybe we need to go back to the law. Maybe we need to go back to the, the, you know, the sacrifices and all of that. That's Sinai, the writer says here. In Galatians 4, he will say, that Mount Sinai in Arabia corresponds to, in his day, the Jerusalem that now is. In other words, the synagogue of Satan that was at one time the church of the Jews. That had become something entirely different now. Rather, Paul will say in in Galatians 4, the Jerusalem which is above is free. And we are the son of the free woman, not the son of bondage. And so the same thing is said here by the apostle. If it was Paul, I'm rather convinced that it was, but I can't be dogmatic on that. But notice what he will say. He he, He spoke to us about Sinai. What did he say? You will come to Mount Zion, city of the living God, and the heavenly Jerusalem. Same thing, same concept, right? But in coming to that, beloved, what we were very careful to point out and what we should be careful to maintain in our thinking is we don't want to make this hard and fast bifurcation between what we call the visible and the invisible church in such a way that these things are separate and never congeal, never touch, never come together. Because, beloved, is there not only one church? There's only one church, right? And the Lord has given us two perspectives on that one church. He's given the divine perspective, which is that perfect and all-knowing perspective. The Lord knoweth them that are His, 2 Timothy chapter 2. And let everyone that nameth the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Notice, naming the name of the Lord and, and the Lord knowing those who are His. Those are the two different perspectives brought together there. So then what is the visible church in relation to the invisible church? It's simply what God has given to us as earthly administrators of that which he has in heaven. And so the, so the visible church, as we have learned over our study, is very often filled with believers and unbelievers. This is the difference in ecclesiology between ourselves and our Baptist friends, as we heard last week in our sermons on baptism. We have an ecclesiological difference, a churchly difference. They believe the church is made up of believers. We believe that the church is made up of believers and unbelievers. And we want to make sure that the gospel is preached here and not just out there. So in this visible administration then, we learn that there are all kinds of wonderful things that God has provided. We're not going to separate that church into visible and invisible as if we had two churches. No, the Lord is administering and bringing to its fullness that which is known only to him through this uh, ages-long visible administration. This is how the Lord will bring all of his people home through the efforts that God uses in the visible church. With a few extraordinary exceptions outside of her bounds. We think of the Ethiopian eunuch. What church was he a member of? Well, I don't know for sure. But I'm not willing to say he didn't have anybody that he worshipped with. He was on his way back from Jerusalem at the feast. He at least knew to do that. And when he got back home to Ethiopia, do you think he was the only one in Ethiopia who ever went to Jerusalem to worship at the feast? Probably not. As there were synagogues all over the known world at that point. So... 
As we move on then uh, in our study today, we, we, we first talked about the city itself, as the Apostle does here, under the several names that he used. What were those names again? Mount Zion, city of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem. So those three names. And we said that what that means is that this visible church corresponds to everything that we've ever read in the scripture. That when we sing as psalmists the word Zion, we're not singing about a bygone thing that happened over there in Palestine. We're we're singing about our church. We're singing about the Lord's church in every age. And we make those prayers for our church in our age and other churches that have the same faith and practice. Okay, but then we talked about the people in that church. We moved on from the city itself to the inhabitants. And the inhabitants here in verse 23, we said, General Assembly, Church of the Firstborn, which are written in heaven, to God the judge of all, we haven't gotten there yet. Spirits of just men made perfect and so on. And so we want to talk about the inhabitants. We want to move a little bit farther down the road. So we said, first of all, when we talked about the innumerable company of angels, we used the, the more generic word for angel there. And we said that an angel is anyone that's sent with a message. And so the ministers of the gospel are often called angels in scripture. And the elect spirit angels are also Angels that are in service of those who are inheriting salvation. And they are there. They are here with us. Ministers and teachers are here with us. Those who bring that message of the gospel. Those angels are here to assist those who are inheriting salvation. This is a part of God's gift to his church. Then to that general assembly. What is the general assembly? We said two weeks ago that this general assembly is this festal gathering. It is a a gathering of joy. That we come together joyously to receive the benefits that our God has given us as a covenant people. This would be another difference between uh, some of the, the popular ecclesiologies of the day and our ecclesiology. In our ecclesiology, we understand that we can consider ourselves as a people in the singular. A people. One covenant people. And that we, in a sense, don't we, beloved... Rise or fall together. As we heard in the communion of saints today, we want to partake of one another's gifts and graces. Right? Our success as a people is, is, or a part of that is being committed to the success of one another, spiritually speaking. It's a general assembly. It's it's an assembly of joy where we come together as a people. And in that way, beloved... When there's sin in the camp, the Lord withdraws his presence. We all suffer from that. Right? We, we heard earlier when Achan took a gold wedge and silver and a Babylonish mantle and hid it in the dirt between, uh, beneath his tent. That the next day when the army went out after Jericho and went to Ai, that, what was it, 37 or 38 men died. And Achan was left alive until the day of judgment for him came very soon after that. But see, this is a general assembly. It is a festal gathering of saints that come together. And when we come together, there is a responsibility that we have to one another. When we maintain personal purity, it's not just personal, is it? It's a help to us all. You'll remember that sometimes Pastor Riddell gets... Uh, right on top of our toes, mine included. And we start talking about thinking covenantally, that we would push down our self-interest and cry up our covenantal interest. And one of the ways that we do that is we ask the question, what would it be if everybody did what I'm about to do? Right? You get up in the morning on the Lord's Day, you're tired. I'm tired, I don't feel like going to church today. What if everybody felt that way? What if the pastor felt that way? Yeah, well, it would be a big change, wouldn't it? It's not thinking covenantally. It's not thinking what it means to come and sit down and look left and look right and see all your peeps there. And when you, when you see all your peeps there, what do you think? You think, ah, oh, and if somebody's not there, it's like, I don't know what to do. Something's wrong. 
Where are they? Are they on a trip? Surely he's clean. Oh, he's unclean. He's unclean. That's what Saul said about David, right? When he, when he went, oh, surely he's defiled. He couldn't be, be at my table. Right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's an amazing thing the way we think. We want to think together on that. We want to be an encouragement one to another. And sometimes, beloved, it, it really is this simple. I know it doesn't seem this simple, but it really is. That sometimes just your being here is a great encouragement to your brothers and sisters. Even if you never hear. Even if, you're not, if, you, if you go all day long and you, and you don't have an opportunity to talk to that particular brother or that particular sister, just seeing them here is a comfort, isn't it? It's a comfort. It's an encouragement. It's a, it's a motivation to be there next week so that you can return the favor. You can pay it forward, as we say. So General Assembly, Church of the Firstborn. What is Church of the Firstborn? Well, that means that, in a sense, we're royalty. That when we come to this festal gathering, it is not to meet with the rabble of the world, but with the royalty of the world. That is, those who are united to Christ and co-heirs with Him. Uh, the, the term firstborn there is not in the singular, it's in the plural. So we might translate it rightly as Church of the Firstborn Ones church of the firstborn ones well wait a minute now how many firstborns are there in, in any family or house there's only one but jesus says come on and i'll make you firstborn with me you will be as paul says in romans chapter 8 co-heirs with christ you will inherit with him you'll have the rights and privileges of the sons of god as the adopted children of God and Paul will tell the Corinthian church and Lord willing we'll get to this in a little bit he will say don't you know that we will judge angels right our larger catechism says it like this that at that last day we will join with Christ in the judgment of the reprobate angels and men we will join with Christ in that judgment is that because of our great lives that we lived? No, it is, by, it is by the grant of privilege. That's what the firstborn is. And when you come to church, beloved, you sit next to those who share that same privilege with you. The third thing that the writer said here was, whose names are written in heaven. And we said, boy, we want our name on that roll, don't we? But we can't reach up to heaven and write on that roll. But the Lord has, hasn't required that of us. He said there's an earthly, an earthly role, a visible role, that your name can be a part of. And it ought to be there. It ought to be on that role. So that's where we've been thus far. Took a little bit of an extended review there because it's been, uh, we've missed a week. So we come to the next phrase, which is a most comforting phrase, as we heard from Robert Trail. Uh, to God the judge of all. <clears throat> I think that the biblical terminology here is different from popular terminology. You think so? I think so. When we talk with our brothers and sisters that are out there in the world that, that don't really have this understanding with us, we'll say, well, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I came to God. Yeah, I've come to God. But what do they mean when they say that? They mean something intimate, private, and not public at all. They mean something that the world has pounded our religion into, which is what? That you can have your religion as long as it's ultimately private. As long as you can say, yeah, I have, <clears throat> I have you know, Jesus in my heart, and so that's all I need, and you know, all the rest of it. You can tell me, civil magistrate, to stay home from church. That's okay, because I've, I've come to God. Mm. You see what the writer does here, right? He says that a part of our coming to the visible assembly and being a part of it is our coming to God. We have come to God, the judge of all. <clears throat> and so there is a coming to him that is more than just private. There's also a public aspect to our coming to God. Where we're going in First Peter in the morning series when we're done with uh, growth is we 
we come to verse 4 of 1 Peter 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 4, and what Peter says there is, to whom coming is a living stone, you are stones built up in, a house, in that house of God. You come to Christ the cornerstone, you are living stones built up in that house. That is, when you come to Christ, you come to that church and are incorporated into it, you become a stone in that wall. And so you provide, or those who went before you in the lower courses, they provide what you stand on, and then you will provide for the courses that come after you as they are stacked on top of you, as that building is built up into a habitation of God in the Spirit. Beloved, that's just not invisible. It's visible as well. When we come, we come visibly as well as spiritually. Oh, we hope we do both, right? We hope that our coming to the Lord is not only coming to Him in the visible assembly, but if we would say that, why would we also think it acceptable to be coming only in the invisible assembly? You see how that can't be congruous at all. The writer here is not talking, as we heard earlier, only about the invisible church. There's only one church. And so we come to God, the judge of all. Well, there is a coming to him visibly that must be understood in Christianity. And I think that we live in a pietistic age that doesn't understand that. That's why I bring it up. But let's move on and take in the entirety of the phrase that we come to God, the judge of all. Let's look at a few passages of scripture together. Psalm 122 is the first one. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Our feet shall stand within thy gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is builded as a city that is compact together, where the, whither the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord unto the testimony of Israel, to give thanks unto the name of the Lord, for there are set thrones of judgment, the thrones of of the house of David. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? First of all, David is obviously talking about something visible here, right? And yet, we wouldn't limit what David is speaking about to something visible. We would also talk about those thrones of judgment are not just the thrones by which David judged among his people, but the thrones by which Christ judges in the church. It's an interesting thing to think about. We, we talked earlier today from Deuteronomy chapter 25 about how we pretty much consider that many of the judgments that take place in our legal system today, they take place in an unjust way. There are people that are condemned we think are innocent and people that are innocent we think are condemned and, and it seems like, like uh, juries have become partisans and so on and, and it's very discouraging overall, isn't it? But beloved... Are you looking for relief from that? How about a place where perfect justice exists? Now certainly not particularly in the visible church, but when we come to God, the judge of all, we come to perfect justice. Don't we? What a benefit. What a blessing it is to those who belong to Zion that they know that when they come to God, they come to God, the judge of all. It is a blessing in the fact that we know that there will be no perversion of justice with him. That the judgments that he makes, they are true judgments. And beloved, I don't know about you, but that gives me great peace, great confidence. That... When we come to be judged by the Lord and when someone will take the time with us to open up the Bible and expound it to us and say, this is what God said, this is God's judgment, and we can say amen to that, that there is a finality to that, that, beloved, doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. Because everywhere else in the world it's up for grabs, isn't it? 
Everywhere else in the world, we hear those human, partisan, pinched, tendentious, biased judgments. Is the Lord biased in his judgments? Yes. Yes, but he's biased to himself, to the truth, to righteousness, to holiness. And so, beloved, when someone will take us through those proper means and show us what the Bible says and, says, and, and will say, we'll have the courtesy and the love and the concern and the care to come to us and look us dead in the eye with love and say, Brother, sister, this is the judgment of God. And we ourselves say, Amen. There is a relief and peace and a confidence to that that we can have in no other place in the world. Now you might be tempted to say, Well, Pastor, but aren't God's judgments in the world too? They are. They are. But they are not, according to his word, at least not necessarily. They are in such a way that surely God is working his secret providence, right? And so Joseph can say to his brethren, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to save many people alive at this day, to keep alive that line of Messiah, right? He can say that. And he said that truly. But that was something that went on out there in the world. That's not how we make judgments here, though. How do we make judgments here? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. How ought we to make judgments here? It's the most interesting passage, I think. Dare any of you, verse 1, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and and not before the saints, Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. I speak to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goeth to law with brother and that before the unbelievers. Now therefore there is utterly a fault among you. Because ye go to law one with another. Why do you not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Nay, ye do wrong and defraud. And that your brethren. What had the Corinthians done? They had said among themselves. That our own self-interest is greater than the reputation of Christ before unbelieving civil magistrates. Such that, if you've defrauded me, brother, I'm going to take you to law. The Apostle Paul will say, why wouldn't you turn to the church for justice? Because, can I maybe change the phraseology a little bit? Because you've come to God, the judge of all. Seeing that you've come to Him, can you not find proper judgment among yourselves? In other words, while you are here in that visible assembly, aren't you hearing enough of the word of God so that when these things come up between you, you know how to judge them rightly from your father's word? Do you know how to do that? You should know how to do that. That's the implication of what Paul is saying here. That one of the things that happens to us as we come to the visible assembly, and we hear, as Jeremiah puts it, line upon line, precept upon, Isaiah, excuse me, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, as we, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, sermon by sermon, reading by reading, psalm by psalm, prayer by prayer, have our minds inculcated with the things of the Lord, that the Lord will indeed judge our thoughts we will be judged and we will fall down on our face like it says in first corinthians 14 and say certainly god is in you of a truth the visible assembly beloved is designed by god to raise us up to those proper judgments that truly we all crave right no one wants to be misjudged no one wants to misjudge another 
Have you ever done that? Have you ever thought in your heart, oh, I know why he or she did that. It was because of X, Y, Z. And then you find it was completely different and certainly innocent. And isn't that convicting? That evil thought that you had of someone. Don't we crave righteous judgment? We have come to God, the judge of all. And we have come to him in the visible assembly to learn his word, to learn his statutes, to learn his judgments. That we also might learn to judge rightly. He's preparing us now for that time when we will sit with Christ and judge reprobate angels and men. This is the place then, beloved. This is the place that we ought to expect righteous judgment. This is the place we ought to expect sound judgment. This is the place where we ought to expect good judgment. Why? Because the Lord is here. Sadly, it's not often or or not always that case. Sadly, there are times when the judgments are perverse, even in the church. There, there are ways of recourse. There are things that the Lord has put in place to correct that. And we want to follow all of those means, certainly. We want to get to that proper judgment. But the other thing to be remembered, and I have learned this as a presbyter, is that when those who are over me in authority tell me no, my best response is to say thank you. We always used to say you can learn more telling someone no than you can telling them yes. Will we submit to the judgments that the Lord has put in our midst? So that's the first point. That when we come to God the judge of all, we come to him as he works in the church to raise up all of our understanding by these ordinary means, that we too might learn to make those righteous judgments. And when someone would sit with us and show us the mind of God from his word, and we make that judgment together and we say amen together, there is a particular finality to it that gives us confidence and hope and peace that we simply can't have anywhere else. What a great value, what a great benefit. That the Lord has given us in his church. But the second point on judgment that I want to bring up with you. Is that is especially what Robert Trail brought up. As we approach this judge being justified in Christ. We know that we stand in his righteousness. We stand in Christ. And so Timothy. uh, Paul will tell Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4. And we'll learn this a little bit later on won't we. In some of what the apostle says in Hebrews 12. But notice what it says here. Oops, 2 Timothy. I have fought a good fight. I'm in verse 7. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. The crown of righteousness that Paul is speaking of here is not a crown of earned righteousness. It's a crown that in glory will be righteousness itself. Right? It is, it is one of those inclusive terms. The crown of righteousness is not, okay, you've been righteous, I give you this crown. No, 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 no. The crown is the righteousness itself. That in Christ, when Paul stands before the Lord... He will receive from Christ that full glorified righteousness by which he will stand before God for all eternity. And God as a righteous judge will never say no to Christ's righteousness. Beloved, if you stand in Christ, God will judge you righteously. Which means what he will do is he will show you all of your sins. And then he will say, come ye, blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And you will see at that day when a thousand fall by your right hand and a thousand fall by your left that the only thing that keeps you from falling with them is the righteousness of Christ which has been imputed to you by faith alone. That's the judge you come to. And he will never say no to his son's righteousness. Oh, you must be in him. If you're not in him, you will stand there alone, 
clothed in your own filthy rag righteousness, and you will not prevail. But if you stand in Christ, the righteous judge will not say no to his son. But if you stand in yourself, he must say no to you. Turn with me to Micah chapter 7. Forgive me, I buried my notes. In the Bible here, there we go. Micah chapter 7. Let's see, where am I here? Verse 9. Verse 8. Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he plead my cause and execute judgment for me. He will bring me forth to the light, and I shall behold his righteousness. Then she that is mine enemy shall see it, and shame shall cover her which said unto me, Where is the Lord thy God? Mine eyes shall behold her. Now shall she be trodden down as the mire of the streets. What a great passage. This righteousness then is the Lord's righteousness. Yes, we have sinned against him, but he will vindicate our cause. Here it says in Micah chapter 7. Though we have sinned against him, he will plead my cause and execute judgment for me. He will bring me forth to the light and I shall behold his righteousness. So we approach this judge then being justified by Christ. There's only one way to approach this judge of all. If we approach that judge in any other way than through Christ, and in Christ through his church, this is where we we are informed in the preaching of the gospel, and all other means of approach will end in the consumption of those who dared to draw nearer. Is not that true? That is true. We sang from Psalm 7. Psalm 7 has been on my mind this week as I have been thinking about Uh, this passage of God's judgment. I really like the tune that we sang earlier from uh, Psalm 7, 1 through, it was either 8 or 9, I don't remember which now. But really, um, you know, that that tune, being a a nice tune, has been on my my mind this week. Notice what it says. Verse 8. The Lord shall judge the people. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to mine integrity that is in me. Of course, that is an integrity that rises up out of faith. This is one eye on David, one eye on Christ. My defense is of God, which saveth the upright in heart. Notice verse 9. O let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just, for the righteous God trieth. What is another word for trieth? Judgeth. The hearts and reigns. And so, beloved, we come to this God who is the judge of all. We come to him, first of all, because it is a great thing to know that we are under a purely righteous judgment. No longer partisan. No longer, uh, no longer partial, right? No longer cheating. But secondly, we come to this God because he rightly judges us as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 this man who comes in he hears the word of God preached and the secrets of his heart are bared open why? because God is the judge and it is only under the preaching of the word of God that our hearts are truly bared open and we are apprised of our sins but then third we, are, we, are, we come to this God who is judge and we come to him who judges according to his righteousness and will never say no to his son. And if you stand in Christ, you will be accepted. Oh, all of your sins will be known and it will be shown. And the Lord is in the business of bearing your soul bare with your sins. But he is also in the business of pouring in the balm of Gilead because of Christ. 
And so we read that in Micah chapter 7. Though I have sinned against him, yet he will vindicate my cause. And so those three things to talk about the judge of all the earth. And then, sadly, we have to speak about one more. There is indeed one more. Before we do that, however, let's take a look at those secrets of the heart being exposed. Turn to Psalm 73 for a moment. You remember the story of Psalm 73. We use it a lot because it is so appropriate for our condition. Asaph begins to walk by sight and not by faith. And he sees the the wicked rich and that there's no bands in their death. And they seem to be swimming along just fine without God. And finally it takes him all the way to, Surely I have washed my hands in innocency in vain. All that I have endeavored to do, this has been empty. He goes actually that far. Verse 13, Verily I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. But then notice in verse 16, When I thought to know this, it was too painful for, for me until I went unto the sanctuary of God. Then understood I their end. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction, how they are brought into desolation in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors as a dream when one awaketh. So, O Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was pricked in my reign. So foolish was I and ignorant, I was as a beast before thee. What does Asaph say? Let's make a couple of contrasts so we can understand what he's, what he's actually doing here. I thought it was vain to serve God because I saw the wicked that they were doing so well. At least it appeared to me they were doing well. My eyes told me. My senses told me. They're doing well. I didn't consider it by faith. I considered it by sight. Okay. So then I went to the sanctuary of God and I saw their latter end. Surely thou sets their feet in slippery places and so on. He talks about their judgment to come. But notice what Asaph doesn't do. He doesn't say, ha, 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 now I know your number over there. Oh, you wicked, you've got it coming. It's coming to you. I can take comfort now. No, what does he say? When he came to the sanctuary of God, his own heart was laid bare. Notice, listen to what he says. He says, Thus was my heart grieved, and I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I and ignorant, I was as a beast before thee. Oh, the righteous judgment of God pierced right through to his heart and laid the secrets of his heart open. And what did he declare? The same thing that the man in 1 Corinthians 14 declares. Surely God is in you of a truth. And so we find him in his repentance. And it is in his repentance then that we hear what? Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none that I desire on earth but thee. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. How did he get there? Because God, the judge of all, laid his heart bare. That's how. Beloved, does God lay your heart bare? Has he laid it bare? It's a good question. This is why we come to Zion, to God, the judge of all. So that we will have competent, upright judgments. That we can open the word of God together and make the right judgment and say amen and agree and be at peace. Second, so we can come by way of Jesus Christ and know that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And that he will not say no to his son. Third, so that we may come and have our hearts laid open for our sins. So that we may know that we have no one but Christ and we must abide in him. And then fourthly, and lastly, turn with me to Ezekiel. Where are we heading here? Ezekiel chapter 34. I have uh, an opportunity, uh, it's a blessed opportunity from time to time, to speak to fellow ministers. And one of the passages that I always point them to Uh, as a part of my own refreshing as a pastor, 
is Psalm, uh, sorry, Ezekiel 34. Uh, I've preached on Ezekiel 34 to our presbytery because I think it's good for our elders uh, to hear what it means uh, here to shepherd the flock according to the Lord's design that's spoken of in Ezekiel 34. In the first portion of this chapter, verses 1 through 10, is uh, the Lord looking upon the wayward shepherds of the flock who will feed upon the, sh- the sheep rather than feeding the sheep, who take advantage and who, who oppress the sheep of the Lord. And the Lord says, I'm going to require them at your hand, which is a scary thing to remember. right? And so this is one of those passages that comes up. However, the Lord does not uh, terminate his discussion on talking to the shepherds, but he also turns his attention to the sheep. And there's one more judgment that must be made here. Number four, and, and let's read about it now in verse 11. For thus saith the Lord God, behold, I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeketh out his flock in the day that he is among his sheep that are scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and will deliver them out of all places where they have been scattered in the dark and cloud in the cloudy and dark day. And I will bring them out from the people and gather them from the countries. And I will bring them into their own land and feed them upon the mountains of Israel by the rivers and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in a good pasture and upon the high mountains of Israel shall their fold be. There shall they lie in a good fold and in a fat pasture shall they feed upon the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock, and I will cause them to lie down, saith the Lord God. I will seek that which was lost, and bring again that which was driven away, and will bind up that which was broken, and will strengthen that which was sick. But I will destroy the fat and the strong. I will feed them with judgment. And as for you, O my flock, thus saith the Lord God, Behold... I will judge between cattle and cattle, between the rams and the he-goats. Seemeth it a small thing unto you to have eaten up the good pasture? But must ye tread down with your feet the residue of your pastures, and to have drunk of the deep waters? But ye must foul the residue with your feet? And as for my flock, they eat that which ye have trodden with your feet, and they drink that which ye have fouled with your feet. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God unto them, Behold, I, even I, will judge between the fat cattle and between the lean cattle. And we could go on reading, but you get the idea. That we have seen three judgments of the Lord in his house thus far. We have seen that proper and right judgment that we spoke of in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We've spoken of the judgment that that takes place in the context of the righteousness of Christ. We've seen that judgment of God that lays our heart bare. And fourthly, we see the judgment of God in his visible church between cattle and cattle. Between the fat ones and the lean ones. And this is where that doctrine of the visible church is brought most poignantly to bear. Beloved, you must be in Jesus Christ. You must not be one of those fat cattle that foul the pasture and the water, the water supply. You must not be that which pollutes the pure worship and doctrine of the Lord. You must not be of those that make it unpalatable for your brethren. You want an example of that? Do you remember Hophni and Phinehas? Sons of Eli, priests themselves. And what did... Eli say to his sons, you have made the worship of God to stink. You have made the worship of God foul to your brethren. The Lord didn't wait long after those days. After that warning that they refused to heed, the Lord judged between cattle and cattle and brought Hophni and Phinehas and the whole house of Eli down, did he not? And so, beloved, 
there are also times when the Lord brings upon his visible people a time of sifting, a time of judging between cattle and cattle. We have, there, we have obviously come to God, the judge of all. And so, beloved, in that day, make sure that you're found not on the side of the proud and the fat cattle, but on the side of the lean and edgy, those who follow their shepherd because they know they have no other supply. Don't follow the fat cattle to the fouled pasture and water. Follow your shepherd. Listen for his voice. And in following him, you will find, as Jesus says, good pasture. You think Jesus had Ezekiel 34 in mind when he preached through John chapter 10? Actually, he didn't preach through it. He authored it. Do you think he had Ezekiel 34 perhaps in mind when he said, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. I lead them into that green pasture. It's not that foul pasture, not the foul pasture of false doctrine, carnal practice, all of those things that have become so popular that the, the, that the Lord declares he will judge and he will judge those doctrines to be false and their adherents, he will say, I will judge between cattle and cattle, between the rams and the goats. There is a day coming when all of that will be made manifest, when the difference between visible and invisible church will be erased at that final judgment, when the Son of Man comes and all His holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory and He will divide the people of God as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. We want to be found on the right hand of our shepherd at that time, don't we? And so, beloved, the Lord is our judge. We have come, and when we come to the church, we come to God, the judge of all, to that place of upright, pure judgment, peace, and tranquility, to that place where we are covered with the righteousness of Christ and judged rightly in Him, to that place where our soul is laid bare by the judgments of God, and we come to Him and we say, surely, like Asaph did, I was as a beast before thee. And then, fourthly, we come to the one who will divide between cattle and cattle. And, O oh Lord, let us be found at thy right hand when thou dost make those judgments. Let's stand and call upon the Lord. Our dear Heavenly Father, what a wondrous place thou hast brought us to as Jacob said the Lord is in this place and I knew it not this is the very gate of heaven the throne of God we thank thee father that thou hast set those thrones of judgment in Zion O Lord we pray for those who are ministers elders those who must make those public judgments in Zion, that it would be according to thy word. That we would hear thy good word, all of us together, and we would say, Amen, Lord God of truth. Father, we ask that when we appear before thee, that thou wouldst consider, consider that we are in Christ and that we might, be, that we might come unto thee as those innocent before thee through Christ by faith and faith alone deliver us from self-righteousness and, and self-aggrandizement and self-actualization oh Lord we pray as well cut cut deep with thy word with thy judgments and expose the secrets of our heart that we may seek thee for forgiveness restoration and communion and father we pray divide divide between cattle and cattle as the apostle paul taught us there must be divisions among these so that those who are approved may be made manifest lord make thy people manifest in our day with right judgment 
And we come unto thee, God, the judge of all. And we look for these judgments. We crave them, Lord. That thou wouldst rise up righteous before us. And that we might hear and follow thee and to learn to judge thy judgments after thee. And we pray all these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.